the people of God will always be a remnant in a pagan world. That is, we will always be a minority. We will always be uh, the smallest of the groups. Matthew 7, Jesus tells us this. He says that broad is the way that leads to destruction and many will find it. But narrow is the path. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And it's hard and only a few will find it. So as we live in this pagan world, as we live in the midst of this brokenness, as we live in the midst of this pain, we must be resolved that we will live as a minority, that we will live as a remnant. God's people have always been a remnant. And for the Christian, this can be discouraging. For the Christian, this can be disheartening. This can be perplexing. This can be confusing. Because what that means is, is that we are never going to have the political influence that we would like to have, ever. What this means is, is that we are never going to be able to walk and to live with the culture and among the culture comfortably, ever. What this means is that if we are to honor God with our lives, in fact, we cannot be with the culture. We have to walk against it, countercultural, walking against the flow, making us tired, making us exhausted. So Jesus is giving us these parables in Matthew 13. Jesus is giving us these parables in Matthew 13 that we might better understand this reality, that we might better understand what it means to live as a remnant here on earth as the kingdom of heaven is being inaugurated and and brought into fruition through us, through his church, so that we can kind of wrap our minds better around who we are, how we are to live, and what we are to expect. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This morning we'll actually be covering two parables. They're, just, they're both very short. So if you would stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. This morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 13. And we'll just read verses 31 through 33. God's inerrant word says, He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Your Bible may say 50 pounds or 60 pounds of flour till it was all Leavened. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So in Matthew 13, we have this series of seven parables. And what Jesus is doing in each of them is he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And so he is helping us to wrap our minds around the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And what it is when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. But even more specifically than that, Jesus is helping us understand some things about the kingdom of heaven that the people of God had gotten wrong. He is helping us to understand some of the things about the kingdom of heaven that were, in fact, unexpected. You see, the Jews had a very clear framework as to what the kingdom of heaven was going to look like. The Jews had a very clear and established framework of what it was going to look like when the Messiah came and inaugurated the kingdom of heaven and the rule over the universe. 
And so in their minds, they had it very clearly, knew that X was going to happen, Y was going to happen, and Z was going to happen. In my mind, it's very similar to the way we see a lot of people today talking about the second coming of Christ. They believe they have a very clear picture of what that's going to look like. And I think through Scripture and through the help of the Spirit, we can have an idea. But I believe that just as it was in the, true in the first coming, it will probably be true in the second coming, that the people of God will be astounded as to how things unfold. And so we see in these parables, just in the ones that we've already covered, Jesus correcting a number of the misperceptions that they had about the kingdom. See, the Jews believed that in the kingdom of heaven, that when the Messiah came and inaugurated this kingdom, that all of Israel, all of ethnic Israel, would be galvanized behind him, would be unified behind their mighty uh, warrior, their mighty king, the Messiah. But Jesus tells them the parable of the soils, doesn't he? And he says, no, in fact, the good sower will come and he will sow good seed. But he's going to fall on a lot of different hearts. And on some, they will snatch the way. On some, it's going to look like it takes root and it's going to wither and die. And in others, the world is going to choke it out. Only a few, only a few will have a heart in which the gospel takes root. Only a few, in fact, will come and will be a part of my kingdom, the remnant, right? Further, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, that all of ethnic Israel would finally experience purity. That they would not be defiled by this pagan world anymore. That they would not have to, they would be withdrawn from the world and to themselves and all of the world would be in utter exile. But then Jesus tells us the parable of the weeds, doesn't he? He says, no, the kingdom of heaven is not like that. In fact, in the kingdom of heaven, as it's unfolding here on this earth, it's like a field in which the weeds and the wheat are growing up together and the roots are intertwined and overlapped and so will my disciples be in the world until the judgment day. Until the day in which I come and snatch them from the world and separate them out. When we come to the two parables this morning, I believe that this misperception would have been the most shocking to all of the Jews. That when they were reading through, if you could put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew, and as they're reading through the Gospel of Matthew for the very first time, unsure maybe what to think about Jesus, unsure maybe of of what this this Messiah business is all about with with Christ, and trying to work him with their framework, and working with what they thought, when they came to verse 31 through 33, I believe it would have been the way we read a newspaper, Right? Now, I've been, I got this tradition now. Some of you keep up with me on Twitter and you know this. I got this tradition now. On Friday mornings, I go and I drop Gracie Kate uh, off at school. And I'm off on Friday uh, most of the time. And so I will go to Jack's and I'll eat a biscuit. All right? That's just my jam, man. To me, my money, Jack's got the best chicken biscuit on earth. That's just for free for you. All right? That's wise counsel. You like chicken biscuits? Check it out at Jack's. All right? They got a spicy option now. Fantastic. But at Jack's, you know what I always see? I always see a table, round tables of elderly men gathered around there eating their breakfast and solving the world's problems. Most of the time, they're wearing keen water shoes and nice dress pants. And I, I mean, I don't, I'm not really sure how that goes together. But you can see, and what are they doing? Most of the time, they're having conversations with their politicians. Most of the time, they're sitting there and they've got their newspaper and they're, they're playing out these imaginary conversations that they would like to have with her or with him about this, right? And I would imagine that when a first century Jew was reading through the Gospel of Matthew and they came to this parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, that they would come and they'd be like, 
Oh, no. No, he didn't just say that. And they begin to have these imaginary conversations with Jesus, telling, man, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you're obviously not the Messiah. Because you have no idea what the kingdom of heaven is to look like. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Now, in Jesus' day, that was a common saying. It was a, a proverbial way of saying that something is as small as it could be. A mustard seed was, uh, I've told you before, this is an agricultural uh, culture, and so the, a mustard seed was the smallest of all of the seeds that a farmer would plant. And so anytime someone would want to say something was small and, and maybe say it hyperbolically, they would say it in a way, and they would say, well, that is as small as a mustard seed. That would be like us saying that is as small as a mouse, or that is microscopic. What does Jesus say is this small? This is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you understand their framework for the coming of the Messiah had no room for that kind of thinking. Had no room for that kind of talk. The, the, the coming of the Messiah was when Israel was going to be reestablished as a universal superpower. This is when they were going to be reestablished as having the military above all militaries, of having the king above all kings, to be able to wipe the earth of all of their enemies. Jesus has the audacity. Jesus has the nerve. Jesus is, in their eyes, foolish enough to say that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. That the kingdom of heaven is like just a, a little bitty leaven put right in the middle of 50 pounds of dough. For a Jew, it would have been unthinkable. And so what Jesus is telling them is that the kingdom of heaven is going to have small, humble beginnings. That the kingdom of heaven is not going to come as the Jews believed the kingdom of heaven was going to come. They believed that the Messiah was going to come in a burst of glory, in a blaze of glory, and that everybody would immediately be galvanized by him and drawn to him. But Jesus is telling them, no. In fact, this is not how it's going to happen at all. That the kingdom of heaven is going to start small. The kingdom of heaven is going to, to, is going to start humbly. I am not coming here to sit on a throne. I am not coming here to wear a crown. You can understand that Jesus' disciples, this would have taken them back too. They apparently had the same kind of Jewish framework for the Messiah, and it appears to have taken them quite a bit of time to have overcome this. You can see that in questions that they ask when they ask Jesus things like, Jesus, when you sit on the throne, can, like, can I sit on your right-hand side and the others sit on the left-hand side? You understand, they're not talking about the spiritual kingdom. They're not talking about the kingdom one day. They're talking about right now. When you go and you take over Caesar and you seize the empire in a military coup, can I sit beside you? What does Jesus say? You completely don't understand my kingdom. You completely don't understand my kingdom. In my kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And in fact, in my kingdom, come to come and inaugurate my kingdom, I have come to sow and to serve and to be last myself. See, Jesus was not headed to a throne. He was headed to a cross. Jesus was not to wear a crown of gold. Instead, he was to have a crown of thorns woven together and pressed down on his skull. 
He was not going to wear the purple robes of royalty. Instead, across his flayed back, a makeshift robe would be, lap, would be wrapped around him, sticking to the scabs. Jesus was not to have the scepter that allowed him the universal and sovereign right to say and do as he pleases. Instead, a reed, a makeshift scepter, would be placed in his hand as the soldiers at the foot of the cross said, All hell, king of the Jews, mocking him as some wannabe crazy lunatic. No, the kingdom of heaven was coming. The kingdom of heaven had been inaugurated. But the kingdom of heaven was to have humble beginnings. The kingdom of heaven was to begin in a way that the disciples never saw coming. And so Jesus here in this parable is looking at his disciples and he is saying, Don't judge my kingdom by what you see. Don't judge my kingdom by the things that you can count Don't judge my kingdom and the inauguration of my kingdom and the effectiveness of the gospel message. Do not judge it by what your eyes can see, what your eyes can behold, what your finite mind can wrap around. Because the kingdom of heaven is not going to look anything like what you expect. It's going to be in small and humbly. And Christian, this morning I think the message is applicable to us as well. That we must guard our hearts and guard our eyes and guard our minds to not evaluate the effectiveness of the kingdom. To not view the kingdom through what we can count and what we can see and what we can understand. We are Americans. We just went to the Olympics and destroyed the nations, right? We like the medal count. Every day I would go and I would look at the medal count and I wanted just to see that the red, white, and blue was better than everybody else. Us as Americans, we've been trained for results. We've been trained to to understand the world and things that we can quantify. If you've ever taken a business class in your life, you know that what do they say? Every goal that you set for yourself must be quantifiable. And so when we come to the kingdom of heaven, we take those same classes, those same, that same results-driven mentality, and we apply it to the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, Jesus is calling us back to the center and saying, don't judge my kingdom that way. In fact, I believe that when we come to the kingdom of heaven with this type of mentality, that it threatens our spiritual vitality. That it, it actually begins to be a threat to the vitality of our faith and the ability of our faith to thrive and to be healthy and to live a life that is filled with joy. I think there are primarily two threats here to the vitality of our faith. I think the, the first one is, is that if we are results driven, if we judge the kingdom of heaven by what we see, then we will quickly become disenchanted. We will quickly become disenchanted. Here's what I mean by that. In our minds, let's use the church as an example. Because I I think that that this is the clearest picture of the kingdom of God living here on earth, right? The church. If in our minds we have an understanding that the church is only being blessed because God is growing the church, we can become quickly disenchanted with our church. If, If our church is not growing, or if our church is not growing fast enough, or if our church is not growing in the way that we want our church to grow, we can quickly become disenchanted and believe that what we're doing is worthless. Believe that what we're doing is is not meaningful at all. If we go out and we share our faith, 
Maybe the Spirit has moved in your heart, and so you, you, you work, and, and man, you know I've got to go, and I've got to spread the gospel. I've got to go, and I've got to engage people in spiritual conversations. And so you, you're, you're kind of you're shy, and you're nervous, and so you kind of just, you kind of finally take the plunge, right? And you finally, you finally bring up something about the things of God as the opportunity arises, maybe at the place you work, or maybe it's with your lost husband. And it doesn't work. In your mind, you've heard the preacher say, you've read in the Bible that the Spirit is going to bring to your remembrance, the Spirit is going to convict the heart, so if you'll just share, they will come, right? But you share and they reject you. You share and maybe they just nervously move on to the next subject as quickly as they can. And if you're in your mind, if you're results driven, if in your mind you are all about what you can count and what you can see, then what you've just had is a failure. What you've just had is a complete unsuccess. And so you become disenchanted and you stop sharing. Maybe, maybe, in, your, maybe in your relationships, you're, you're trying to bring your relationship back to center. And maybe it's, maybe it's one pulling the other. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with your kids. Whatever it is, you've got this relationship and you're trying to bring it back to the cross. And you're doing everything in your power to live a faithful Christian life with him or with her or with the kids. But despite all of your efforts, it's like it's just falling on deaf ears. It's like they're just not hearing you. And it's easy to become disenchanted and to stop. But brothers and sisters, what Jesus is teaching us is the same thing that he was teaching to Isaiah. He came to Isaiah and he called into ministry. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And you know what Jesus, God tells him next? He says, okay, you're going to go and you're going to preach, but I'm going to close their ears. You're going to go and you're going to preach, but I'm going to harden their hearts. You're going to go and you're going to preach, but I'm going to blind their eyes. You're going to go and they're not going to listen. The results are not going to be as you wish. You see, sometimes in our walk with God, the only benefit, the only effect of our faithfulness is the pleasure and honor of God himself. That very often in our service to the Lord, and in our faithfulness to the Bible, and in our commitment to God, and in our resolve to God, we will go and very often we will not see quantifiable results the way that we want to see them. And the only thing that we can rest in is that we were faithful and that it brought pleasure and honor to God. And brothers and sisters, for the Christian, that is enough. That is enough. So don't become disenchanted, my friends. Don't, don't become disenchanted in your going. Don't become disenchanted in your sharing. Don't become disenchanted with your faithfulness because the kingdom of God is bigger than what you can see. The kingdom of God is bigger than what you can count. The results are eternal, not temporal. You know, it, it, this even applies to giving. I don't talk a lot about money because I've seen a lot of preachers do that in a manipulative way, in an unhealthy way, and so I just don't do it that way. But, but you know what people tell us now is the way that you have to teach people to give? You know how, how you're supposed to increase the giving in your church? By, by showing them the, the thing that their money is going to. That In other words, that you, if you can show them the new sanctuary that they're going to get, then they will give. If you can hold up the picture of the people and know that my money is going there, then you can get people to give. You know what the problem with that is? That requires no faith. There's no faith in that. 
There's no faith in you knowing exactly. That is not the heart of the people of God. Why do the people of God give? The people of God give because we know that God can take our little bit and use it in ways that we can never fathom. We know that God can take a little bit of what we have, which is is scraps in the kingdom of God, and that God can use that for his glory in his way, in ways that completely would blow our minds, but that are at the same time completely unseen by us. You see, you'll never see the young marriages that get saved because of the counseling that your giving offers them. You'll never see all of the people that come through here and get a tank of gas or a, a light bill paid for. You'll never understand the kingdom impact of your giving toward the curriculum that we teach to our children and we sow the gospel into your own heart. You'll never see the impact of the books that are handed out. You'll never see the impact of, of, of being able to quantify the results of us laboring with these Swazi pastors as they go and preach every week. Trust that. You gotta trust that. That the kingdom of heaven is bigger than you. Don't become disenfranchised. Don't become downtrodden. Don't become disheartened because of your results-driven mentality. The other threat, I think, to the vitality of our faith is that we can be deceived. That we can, if we become results-driven, if we become completely wrapped up in what we can quantify and what we can understand, that it will become increasingly possible for us to be de- to be deceived. And here's why. Because we will, become, we will develop a formula. And you have all heard, if you've been around the church of any period of time, you've all seen a formula that was either stated like this, or maybe it was more of an undercurrent. That wherever there is more money given, wherever there are more people present, that is a place that God is clearly blessing. Well, yeah, God's blessing them, isn't he? Well, yeah, 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 God's really blessing us. We have all of these people. We have like three servants. We got all of God is obviously blessing us. And what are we saying? We have seen the results and we like them. We have seen the results and clearly, because we understand results as being the blessing of God, then clearly God is honoring what we did, we do. But the truth of the matter is, is that there are mega churches all across this land that are packed out multiple times this morning with tens of thousands of people. And they are nothing more than a a wolf in a fancy sheep costume. There are, are budgets that are tens of millions of dollars. Tens of millions of dollars. And they are nothing more than the church robbing its people so that the few can have what they want. That is not the blessing of God. It is deception. And what can happen is, is we, growing up in an age of edgy Christian movements and, and edgy Christian churches, Christianized churches and Christianized movement and Christianized people and Christianized organizations, we grow up in this edge and it catches our eye and we go to them. And when we come back to our church, which I think is pretty good, it makes it feel strangely ordinary because the lights aren't as good. And the preacher's not as slick. And the music's not as the quality. The the sound system's not nearly as cool. The lights 
aren't really there. All of the buzz isn't happening. All we've got is the word of God every week. All we've got is this preacher who is living among us and doing us and wrestling, wrestling with the, the, the struggles of the, of the flock. But all of that, when we go and we get bought into the brands and we get bought into the logos and we get bought into the graphics, all of this, we come back and we, we have a tendency just to feel like this is just ordinary. And that God's not here and that God's not doing great works. And that somehow this is a lesser work in the kingdom of God than something that is tens of thousands of people. And I'm not bemoaning megachurches. I think there are some good ones. I think there are some faithful ones. I worked at a, at a quite a large church before I came here. But what has happened is I believe that one of, the, one of the most potent weapons in the arsenal of Satan are modernized churches selling the sanitized gospel with cool lights and clever marketing. And he is calling people deceiving people because they see it and the results are impressive. They see it and the results draw them in because what do they want? They want what they can see. Brothers and sisters, do not judge the kingdom of God by what you see. Do not judge the kingdom of God by what you can count. Do not judge the kingdom of God by what your little mind can understand. The kingdom of God is greater than all of that. So Jesus tells, as he tells the parable, he says, yes, it starts as a, as a mustard seed. But the mustard seed, being the smallest of the agricultural plants, grows up to actually be the largest plant in all of the garden. That, the, that some of the fruits and some of the vegetables have larger seeds than the mustard seed, but the plant of the mustard seed is ultimately going to grow much larger than those. And so he says that all of the birds, it's going to be large enough for the birds to come and to, to make nests in them and to take shelter in them. See, what I think Jesus is teaching us here is he's teaching us and he's teaching his disciples that you've got to look beyond right now. You've got to look beyond right now. Are you, are you frustrated that your political influence is not what you want it to be? Are you frustrated that you're living as a remnant in a pagan world? Are you frustrated and beaten down? What is Jesus saying? Don't live for right now. Look to the future. Look ahead. Look ahead. Look beyond the here and now. Look beyond what you can see. Look beyond what you can count. In fact, Jesus is saying, I believe here, that the church, the kingdom of heaven, is what he is going to use to be a blessing to every nation. Every nation. Why do I say that? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Now, you're probably going to have trouble finding the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is kind of toward the last third of the Old Testament. It's after uh, the Psalms and Proverbs and after the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Go just past those and you'll find... The book of Daniel. Now if you'll remember back a couple of weeks ago, when we were doing the parable of the weeds, I told you that in the parable of the weeds, I believe that there were three different allusions to the book of Daniel. And I think here in the parable of the mustard seed, we see yet another allusion in the, to the book of Daniel. And I think it's a, a powerful allusion that's painting clearly for the disciples what they would have understood and what Jesus wanted them to know. 
I told you, remember that the book of Daniel is what we call an eschatological book. That is, it is a, a book that is pointing us to the second coming of Christ, pointing us toward the end times, pointing us toward Revelation. And in fact, when you read the book of Revelation, you'll find a lot of language very similar to that from the book of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest ruler in all of the world. Perhaps the most powerful ruler the world has ever known or the world has ever seen. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon have conquered literally all of the known world. He is the ruler of everything that is known by anybody to exist. Now luckily we know the Indians were over here in North America just chilling. Just living a good life. But, but, but Babylon had conquered everything else that, had known about, that, that was known about. And in Daniel chapter 4, God speaks into Nebuchadnezzar's life with a dream, a startling dream of what is to come and what is to happen. And we're not going to read all of the dream and all of the interpretation, but we're going to read a section of it that I think applies to our text today. So if you'll look down with me to verse 8 of Daniel chapter 4, verse 8. God's word says, at last Daniel came in before me. He was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their, in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. How did Jesus describe the the, the, what the result of the mustard seed would be? He said it was going to be a tree, a tall tree, right? All right, let's keep going. Verse 11, the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. Now listen to this. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh were from it. What did Jesus say was going to happen? He says the mustard seed is going to be planted. The tree is going to grow taller than the rest of the trees. And what is going to live in the tree? The birds. The birds are going to nest in the trees. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Let's read over to verse 19. This is Daniel interpreting the dream. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches, the birds of the heaven, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown to reaches and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over again. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Let's just stop right there. What does he say? What are the birds? What is the point? What is the picture? 
You understand, Nebuchadnezzar ruling over all of the earth was a unique king. And he was unique not because he was a good man, he was a pagan man. That's what the dream is ultimately about, that, that he was a wicked pagan man. And lots of people under his rule lots of, died lots of senseless deaths. But under the rule of Babylon, the whole earth prospered. Every kingdom, all of those that he conquered, all of those that lived in his empire, all of them experienced a level of prosperity that many of them had never known before and many of them have never known since. In other words, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, life was good. All of them, he was the tree in which all of the nations could come underneath him and take shelter. Here's what Jesus is saying in the, in the parable. I am the greater Babylon. I am the greater Babylon. The kingdom of heaven is the greater Babylon. And under my tree, in this tree, all of the nations will come and take shelter. All of the nations will come and take refuge. The, the birds of the nation will come into this tree and the birds will find safe haven. He is pointing to us the picture of Genesis 12, the fulfillment of Abraham. God had told Abraham that he was going to make him a nation more numerous than the stars of the sky and that he was going to use him to be a blessing to every nation. And in the kingdom of heaven, in Christ Jesus, all of that is going to come to fruition. But at the same time, at the same time, he is calling his disciples to the mission. He is, calling, he is showing them that this is bigger than what they can see. That the mission is bigger than Israel. The mission is bigger than Capernaum. It's bigger than Jerusalem. It's the nations, that all of the nations are to be brought into the kingdom of God. And that God is going to use them, that Christ Jesus is going to use them to be a blessing to all nations. To bring them into the tree, to bring them into the refuge that is the gospel. And you can imagine how overwhelming this would have been. Imagine being Jesus' disciples. And Jesus is saying, look, you're not just going to go. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. My kingdom is to the ends of the earth. My kingdom is to be a blessing to all nations. And so you are going, and you are going to do all of that. By the day of Pentecost, there was like 120 of them. 120. And their job was to go and to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. What is Jesus saying? He's saying like a little piece of leaven put in the middle of 50 pounds of dough, that the, a little bit of the kingdom goes a long way in the world. A little bit of the kingdom goes a, a long, long way in the world. Church, it is our job, it is our responsibility before God to be a blessing to the nations. It is our job as the remnant of the people of God to call people to the tree in which they can find shelter. Maybe you have thought before, why can't we just focus on here? Why can't we just focus on Alabama? Are there a lot of lost people here? There are millions of lost people here. Why can't we just focus on Calhoun County? Are there thousands of lost, there are tens of thousands of lost people here. Why can't we just focus on the United States? Why do we have to go to the other ends of the world? And the, the deal is, is that our mission's just bigger than that. Our job is just bigger than that. It's both and. We are certainly responsible for here, but we are responsible from here to the ends of the earth because to the ends of the earth, Christ Jesus is coming. To the ends of the earth, his rule will be established. And so maybe you're like me, and you hear that, and it's overwhelming. You hear that, and you think, okay, 
well, why don't I just go into the middle of a continent that doesn't understand a word that I say and doesn't care anything about me or my lifestyle or my story at all? Why don't I just go in the middle of that and just try to bring about some change? I'm sure I'm going to have a huge impact. This is where Jesus is telling you. A little bit of the kingdom goes a long way. A little bit of the kingdom goes a long way. In a week and a half, I'm preparing to go 17 hours to Africa. I'm leaving behind my precious wife, eight-month-old baby, and four-year-old little girl. I'm going to miss two weeks of their life, and they're growing so fast, that feels like a lot. I'm going to burden my wife with having to care for those kids completely by herself. Can I tell you the only thing that's getting me on an airplane to fly 17 hours to a place that I'm not familiar with, to a language that they don't understand, I don't understand, to share a gospel that is hard and difficult to share to begin with? The only reason I'm doing that is because I am convinced that a little bit of the kingdom can go a long way in the world. I'm convinced that you can have a little lump of leaven right in the middle of tens of millions of people and that generations can be changed by that. I'm convinced, and I'm calling other men to come with me because I am convinced that we, though we may leave behind our little children, that dozens of children may get saved for generations that follow because of the gospel message that is sown into their hearts. I'm convinced that God can take a little church in White Plains and take it to the other side of the world and take that little bit of leaven and use it to change entire villages. I'm convinced that God can use a little bit of the kingdom from us, this remnant here in Iron City, Alabama, to go over there and to rescue orphans and to feed hungry people and to share the gospel among pagan religions and change it for generations to come. I'm convinced of that. Why is it that we send teenagers over there to spend months of their time in a third world country like Zimbabwe? Because we are resolved before God and convinced by the word of God that a little bit of leaven can go a long, long way in the kingdom of God. That God uses us in ways that are unquantifiable, ways that are beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. That he can do something in us and he can do something through us that we don't even know happened. I think about my brothers, Phil and Brent, in Farmington, Utah. You know, right now, we're working with them to plant a church in Farmington, Utah. There's 45,000 people that live there. According to the census, half of 1% of them are evangelical Christian. That means that out of 45,000 people, there's right at 200 Christians among them. How are they not in despair, brothers and sisters? Why do we even attempt such a work? We attempt such a work because a little bit of leaven goes a long way. A little bit of the kingdom of God can go a long way in the world. I know some of you are in a place and you think, man, I've just never felt like I need to go to missions. I've never felt anything in my heart like I need to leave home and go somewhere else to tell people about Jesus. I've never felt in my heart like I need to go to another country. Can I just tell you, brothers and sisters, you're never going to feel like it. I still don't feel like it. You're never going to feel like getting on an airplane and going 17 hours into the middle of a strange place with people that you don't know, where you feel like you see dangers everywhere so that you can share with them a gospel that you're not even sure that they're going to understand. You're never going to feel like that. But yet, the kingdom of God has called us to a greater work. The kingdom of God has called us to the work of the nations. And so we take that little bit that we have, 
We take that little bit of leaven that we are. We take that little bit of resources that God has blessed us with. We take the little bit of time that God has given us on this earth and we take it to the nations. We take it to the ends of this community and to the ends of the earth because we are convinced by God that he can take a little bit of what we have and use it to change the generations. So Jesus is calling his disciples. Don't, don't just be deceived by what you see. Don't judge by what you see. Don't stop because the results don't seem great enough. Don't quit your work because the results aren't there. Go, go, because the leaven's going to start small, but it's going to spread. The mustard seed's going to be planted small, but it's going to grow into a great shelter for the nations. You see, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is absolutely unstoppable. Absolutely unstoppable. Notice the words that he uses there. He says, when the tree has grown. When. Not if. When. He says the leaven is placed there until what? Till it's all leavened. Meaning it's going to all be leavened. It's going to work. That the kingdom of God is an unstoppable force given to us by the grace of God to go to the ends of the earth with the message of God. And we are those that God has used to be a blessing to all nations. You see, one day, every nation on earth is going to pale in comparison to the kingdom of, earth, of, of heaven. One day, Egypt will crumble, and Babylon will bow, and Rome will tremble. Even, yes, the mighty United States of America, with all of our money and all of our nuclear arsenal, will tremble at the sight and the sound of the voice of God. And we will bow on our faces, and on that day, he will not be wearing a crown of thorns, but many royal diadems. On that day, he will not be wearing a wretched robe, but instead will be clothed in the clothes of royalty. In that day, he will not be the meek servant headed to the cross, but he will be the man on a white horse with the eyes blazing with fire. From his mouth will come forth the sword, and he will slain all of his enemies. Brothers and sisters, in other words, one day we won't be a minority anymore. One day we won't be a remnant anymore. One day we won't be against the current anymore. One day, someday, a soon coming day, we will be home. So brothers and sisters, until that day comes, let us take the leaven of the kingdom to provide shelter for the nations. Let us pray together.